Jeremy and Matt here, just uh, letting you know that we're doing something new for this episode called Cornucopia One-on-One. It's a series of interviews, less scripted and less produced, but equally informative. Long story short, we had a lot of fun making our first six episodes, but it was also extremely time-consuming. Plus, it's pedicab season here in San Francisco, and we're working the tricycle hustle to pay the bills. So, we're trying to produce something a lot more quickly here, and it's a bit of an experiment, but hope you enjoy. Toodles. (laughs) This is Cornucopia. Today on One on One, we speak with David Leibovitz. After 13 years as pastry chef at Chez Panisse, David left the restaurant world to become a writer. In the 17 years since then, he's written seven books and is considered the Mac Daddy, pioneer of food blogging. And in addition, he's no doubt guided tens of thousands on their trips through Paris with his website, davidlebovitz.com where he combines the insight of a great tour book, along with humor that's reminiscent of James Thurber, Nora Ephron, and David Sedaris. David, welcome to Cornucopia. Hi there, Matt. How you doing? That's quite an esteemed group to follow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't flatter insincerely, but if I like somebody, I can definitely make them blush, so... I'll take all um, compliments while I can. So. <laughs> I'm not sure if you got an email from me regarding an excerpt from your May 2017 post on Cobb Salad. Can you read that uh, excerpt for us? Sure. It's something I was holding on to for about the last 35 years of my life. Um, the story about a restaurant in Los Angeles that I ate at when I was a kid. And um, they kept trying to get me to eat something that I... Wasn't sure of what it was. So the the passage you sent me was the first avocado I ever had was at Scandia Restaurant in Los Angeles, and I hated it. The slippery little green cubes avoided my fork until finally I managed to spear one. Once I did, I swallowed it reluctantly, then avoided them the rest of my life. I'm not sure how I came to eventually love avocados, but the city of Los Angeles is a little like that, too. You might not like it at first, but it definitely grows on you. If you haven't discovered David's writing, that tells you why so many people are such big fans. But let's dive into something um, I'm interested in getting your perspective on. If you consider James Beard and Julia Child the first wave of backlash against post-war industrialization of America's food, you were part of that second wave, the emergence of California cuisine alongside the growth of the natural and organic foods movement. Mm-hmm. What What's like the biggest surprise you see today? The thing that surprises me the most is when you're sitting on an airplane or at a fast food restaurant, and I don't really go to fast food restaurants, but, and there's radicchio and arugula on something. Because back in the 70s and 80s, and even like the 90s, it was unheard, you know, the idea of radicchio being served on an airplane, no one even knew what it was. You know, and now, so that whole transformation of all these foods that used to be seen as kind of exclusive or, you know, European or expensive or elitist 
are now everywhere. And they're not, they're just sort of part of our voc- culinary vocabulary. And I think I'm, I'm continuously fascinated by that. From a marketing point of view, part of that can be cynically derided as, well, it's a way to create a little more fluffery. I'm always wondering if that's a little bit of a snarky point of view from someone who looks at data. Well, you know, it is a cynical view, um, but I think it's also a generational thing because, you know, I, you know, seriously, I remember trying to get like a decent cup of coffee, you know, back in the eighties or nineties or something, and, you know, at an airport. And it was just even like going to Los Angeles. I remember going, I used to make my own coffee at home and I'd go visit my family there and there was no good coffee anywhere. Like nothing like Starbucks existed. Um, and now they're part of our, you know, people who were born, you know, after I, I don't know how old you are, but people who were born after I was, um, you or they, you know, everybody grew up already having that. So they don't know what life was like before. And, you know, whether you like them or not, or whether, you know, they're motivated by profit or, you know, trying to improve the quality of life, you know, that's another discussion, but they're there and I appreciate it. And I think that a lot of them may sort of normalized it as well. Like, Whole Foods has been getting a lot of backlash the last few years, but in actuality, a lot of supermarkets have improved because of Whole Foods. They had to get better. Um, Lots of coffee shops sprung up because Starbucks launched this whole idea of go get a fancy cup of coffee for $2.50. So now you have all these pour over places doing coffee for $4.50, you know, and so forth. And, you know, whether that's good or not is, you know, we can discuss that, but I'm happy to have those options personally. I'm 56 this year. And I vividly remember my first job was at a little natural food store in a strip mall in Westport, Connecticut. Did you wear Birkenstocks? I actually did, but um, not at the store. But uh, I was very much bar mitzvah boy turned granola head who was madly in love with all the truck farmers that would come down every springtime from Canada to sell us their maple syrup. Well, I, you know, it's during the 80s in college, I worked at a natural foods restaurant in upstate New York and had the same experience. You know, we had a co-op and we all came to work and the farmers brought us produce before farm to table was even a, you know, a concept. It was like, oh, you know, Bill's bringing in carrots for us and radishes and so forth. And it is, it is interesting to see how it's changed, but it's still is sort of the same Very much. And I think for people of our generation, there was a transactional quality, whether Mm -hmm. it was better quality, better cooking, better for you, better for the environment. There was that relationship. And and uh, this colleague of Mm -hmm. mine, he was telling me, Matt, basically, you know, I'm sure there are people that missed taking the horse and buggy down the road. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, it's I'm really conflicted because I, you know, I deal with a lot of people because I have a blog and I, you know, converse with a lot of people, different kinds of people, different economic classes, different um, family situations. And there's this whole thing about these pre-prepared vegetables in supermarkets. You know, on one hand, it's great that anything that can get people to eat fresh food is terrific. You know, even people who just get off work and have to go feed a family. On the other hand, you know, I see like two carrots in a plastic bag that are chopped that are two ninety nine or something. And you just, 
you know, I'm just like, can you just cut up two carrots? I'll skip ahead to this question I have for you, which is the mantra of convenience. And one of the interesting things in my market research career and talking to some of the old timers, when Fresh Express first introduced the bagged lettuce, all the analysts knew that that would never gain market acceptance. And of course, nowadays, it's hard to find head lettuce, even in a store like Whole Foods. At the same time, prepared meals to go in supermarkets is a huge money maker. There's nutrition bars that are meal replacement, smoothies that are meal replacements. I was really fascinated when I visited France that that currency, at least in those products visible to the tourist eye, of course, with the exception of those little frozen food only stores, would seem to be absent. Well, that that little frozen food store that you mentioned is actually a huge chain. You know, they're on every street in Paris. You know, there's two or three in my neighborhood in Paris. And um, they're wildly popular, although I think less popular with younger people. Um, they recently actually did an American promotion with like hamburgers and pastrami sandwiches and macaroni. And it was like the Fête Américaine, the American festival. And I bought a couple of things and they were pretty um, not delicious. The French have always had a shopping culture where they would – you could go to a butcher and buy a roast pork already made, like all tied up and stuffed and bring it home and bake it. You could go to the pastry shop and buy a cake or a tart and bring it home and eat it. And the French don't have that DIY thing that Americans we have. We're like, oh, my God, I want to make my own macaroons or I want to make a baguette. Because people often ask me, they go, well, when French people make their baguettes, it was like nobody in France makes their own baguette. So you get your bread at the baker because they were trained to be a baker. You get your charcuterie at the butcher because they were trained to make charcuterie. You know, if you're an architect or, a, you know, a writer, like, why would you make your own sausage? You're a writer, not a sausage. <laughs> so it's a different mentality. And I actually do buy their frozen fruit. You can't get raspberries in Paris that are reasonable. They're very, 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 they're like $6 a, a basket for like 12 raspberries in it. So I do rely on those. And why, they have wild blueberries from Northern Europe and so forth. But most of the other food I've had from them sort of tastes like, you know, it's kind of like airplane food. The, yeah, it's the, just, the, the pictures make it look good. I remember seeing, I think, some scallops. Yeah, they're beautiful photography. And people swear by it, you know. So, you know, I've never heard anyone in France say anything bad about Picard, which is very interesting. But there are, you know, we are starting to see the pre-chopped carrots in the supermarket. You know, Picard, the frozen food chain, has chopped onions. They have frozen rice that's already cooked. And, thing, you know, convenience, things like that. And people swear by it, you know, so they really embraced it. It seemed to me, again, through the tourist point of view, that what we call artisan foods here in the U.S. that seem quite prohibitive to my income are readily more available in Paris and at a more reasonable price. Is that an accurate assumption or is it just based on my comparing cowgirl creamery to the, the cheese available in Paris? Well, you know, it, it really varies. You know, people go to the markets in Paris and they call them farmer's markets. And I say, well, you know, these are not farmer's markets. They're not farmers. There are farmers at some of the markets and some of them are all farmers. But, you know, the French didn't traditionally shop at supermarkets. 
And so they would go to the market and that's where you bought your carrots and your eggplant. And even in the, you know, the fall, you know, nowadays you can get zucchini at the market. It's not a summer thing um, because it comes from Spain or Italy or wherever the people at the market, you know, they get their stuff. They're called uh, negocio or middlemen. They go to like Runji's market and buy things and bring them to the market, which is just how like a butcher, you know, the butchers aren't raising the animals and then bringing them in the front and, you know, selling them. So, you know, there's a mixture of both of those at the markets in Paris. Um, But, you know, the French don't, you know, know, a friend of mine who lives in San Francisco and she shops at the Ferry Plaza market. She goes, you have no idea how cheap all this stuff is here in France. And I'm like, really? Because French people think it's very expensive. Um, you know, they think right, the price of cheese, you know, $10 a pound, I think it's 20 euros for Conte cheese, which is very popular cheese, is very, very expensive. And it's four times the price here in America if you were to buy that same cheese. You know, I was just at the fancy food show here and I had these wonderful American cheeses, but they were very expensive. And a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, those people are raking it in. And it's like, well, they're not pulling up in Maseratis, these farmers and cheesemakers. You know, they're, you know, it's hard work and they should be compensated for it. But, you know, I'm watching the healthcare debate happening in America right now. And a lot of things that go into producing food in France, um, the price is, be, you know, the things that might seem expensive because, Benefits are provided, which is very expensive for small business owners. But on the other hand, you have people covered with health care. So, you know, when you buy things, you're paying, you know, 20% VAT tax. And, you know, that's the good side of France is people are covered and so forth. But the price, you know, that's all built into the prices. This is actually a very good segue to one of the questions that I have for you in terms of the politics of food in France versus the U.S. Um, you know, here, nine out of every 10 cents spent on food and beverages go to one of 10 large consumer package good giants. And they also control the regulations. A little plug here, if you haven't listened to our podcast, our second episode, The Forest of Illusions, which is about navigating food label claims, is quite telling how... So much of regulation, the fox is guarding the hen house. So in Paris, is there a, in terms of food politics and the industrialization of food, Carrefour, Group Danone, those kind of large players, do they have a lot of dominance in how food is supported by the French government? I actually don't know about that. Like the numbers that you just reeled off about the United States you know, or I didn't know about that either. I mean, I know that there's a lot of that happening, but I didn't know to what extent. And I actually don't know. There, you know, there are big companies like Carrefour, which you mentioned. You know, it's a big hypermarket for listeners that aren't um, familiar with it. It's kind of like Costco in a way, but there's no membership fee. And um, they have huge amounts of food. It's a huge store. And they're very, very popular. Um, there isn't, there aren't any in Paris. They only have small, like, corner store, because you're not allowed to have those kind of super stores in Paris. If you talk to small business owners, they were, you know, they're feeling really crunched because it's so expensive to have, do business, you know, for them. There's a lot of labor costs and costs involved and, you know, paperwork and so forth. 
And that's why, you know, the, the recent election that we just had, or the president, um, you know, President Macron ran on this, this platform that he was going to be more friendly to businesses. And it, he didn't mean that in a bad way. He's like, well, we need to make businesses work so that the country works, the economy works. And we need to work with businesses, um, in a, you know, in France. Um, they need to make sure that small businesses especially uh, can succeed without all these rules. Most politicians in France are career politicians. Um, they go to school to become a politician, to become a public um, figure. And a lot of them don't have experience in the small business. They don't know what it's like to run a business. And if you talk to small business owners, they were, you know, they're feeling really crunched because it's so expensive to do business, you know, for them. There's a lot of labor costs and costs involved and, you know, paperwork and so forth. And that's why, you know, the, the recent election that we just had, the president, um, you know, President Macron ran on this, this platform that he was going to be more friendly to businesses. Um, and it, he didn't mean that in a bad way. He's like, well, we need to make businesses work so that the country works, the economy works. Um, in, a, you know, in France, um, they need to make sure that small businesses especially uh, can succeed without all these rules. I think one thing that's interesting that's happening in America now is we're seeing a lot of people protesting um, vigorously, like we did in the 70s when, you know, or the 60s when we had the Vietnam War, and people are becoming activists again. So you're talking about, you know, all these foods that are being run by these big corporations. And I think people are starting to see, well, all these corporations that are running healthcare in the country, you know, maybe they don't have the best interests in mind. Um, but what's interesting is Warren Buffett's been talking a lot about um, how single payer healthcare would be great for America because he said, he said the healthcare system in America is what's causing companies to lose so much money. And it's really just a drain. And I'm, you know, this isn't the topic of our discussion, but I've been watching the debate in America and there's so much anguish and fighting and back and forth. And it's like, well, why don't you just come up with a system where everybody kind of pays into it and it kind of, everyone has the same, you know, has the same basic benefits. <laughs> it seems pretty easy. This is Cornucopia, the cult culture and business of food. Subscribe to our email list at cornucopia.show. Rate us at the usual places. And don't forget, share us with your friends, family, parents, children, lovers. And if one person is all of those, stop watching that movie Chinatown so much. Now back to our interview with David, and thanks for listening. Despite appreciating tartine here in San Francisco and salt and straw, the ice cream parlor that's the latest sensation, what fascinates me the most is that people who in other ways are using apps to order their food, order their takeout, you know, their, everything is about immediacy, are willing to wait in line 45 minutes or an hour for a $5 single scoop of ice cream. And yet, as a buddy of mine pointed out when I was on this very snarky soapbox, he goes, you know, I would think you of anybody having spent a career in the food business would find it interesting that here are people who are actually 
say, I'm going to wait in this line for this amount of time because there's something in this experience that's going to give my life more significance. There's something they're seeking. And I wonder in America, has food sort of become the new religion? Has it become something we fetishize or is this just a natural draw to stuff that's really fantastic and kind well, of Well, I think it has become fetishized and I don't know exactly who's to blame and there's really nowhere to point a finger. Um, you know, there's all sorts of different places. You know, I have a food blog. Am I fetishizing food? Yes. Um, you know, I write cookbooks too and that's what I do. But, you know, my intentions are to share. It's This is a shared experience. And I always... You know, I would say it's just food. Um, you know, a friend of mine had this, he was going on, the, he was freaking out because he had a mistake in one of his recipes. And I said, you know, how many people don't have food in the world? <laughs> I was like, you know, the fact that like one of the ingredients is off a little bit, it's not, you know, there's people that literally can't, you know, they're dying every day of no food. So, um, you know, it helps to put these things into perspective. The whole fetishizing of food, you know, it is kind of a privileged thing. We're very fortunate in Western countries that we have lots of food. We have choices. We can go to Whole Foods. We can pick up the phone. We can use an app to have lunch. Um, and I, I, you know, just, I just got one of these online ads from one of these delivery company, food delivery companies. There was a quote from a customer. He's like, I love this company because I never have to talk to another human being. And I was like, do you see the, I mean, I, you know, I'm happy to order stuff without talking to people, but it's just a funny selling point that they would use. And that is a selling point these days, you know. You speak to something very powerful when you say about the luxury of choice, because relax, it's just Whole Foods. Most people in the world don't yeah. have enough to eat. There's such vi visceral particularly in San Francisco, righteousness, yeah. um, that it kind of bespeaks to the fact that even if we're not taking selfies, a lot of us, and I include myself, sometimes need to expand our vision. The other thing I kind of think around that subject is there's a Swiss, he's a bit of a pop philosopher, Alain, A-L-A-I-N, last name D-E-B-O-T-T-O-N. Um, and he spoke to the fact that the first time in this history of the world, humans are living without a central organizing figure. There's no monarch. There's no tribe. For, I should say a significant part of Western, the Western world, the Western developed world. So we no longer have any guiding principle that gives our lives meaning. And I sometimes think that fetishization of food is part of that, where we're seeking meaning. So we buy organic. That means we're helping the world. Because in our day-to-day, -day, we... We're going to work so we can pay the rent and, and get drunk on Fridays. Well, one of the things that's been interesting about the Internet is it's supposed to be this great equalizer. You know, people have access to the Internet. Anybody can do whatever they want. You want to start a blog, you start a blog. You, you know, that... There's different people from all different social and economic classes together. And it's been very interesting to me, you know, write about things. And so I have really, I have great readers on my blog. I'm very uh, fortunate because I learn a lot from them. And, you know, I've, I've written things in the past and people have said, well, you don't understand. Like, 
I'm a, a mother and I don't get home till this hour and I can't cook. I, you know, I'm so exhausted that it up. And I don't think, you know, I'm not in contact with people like that otherwise. So that's sort of, maybe that's our greater power nowadays is the internet for better or worse. Um, but it's really helped me understand other people, you know, especially I'm a, I'm a big bridge between Europeans and Americans. Um, and I have, you know, I kind of do a lot of cultural ambassadorship, uh, between the two countries, explaining one or the other, uh, to either, to both sides. Um, and it is interesting explaining the French to Americans and vice versa, which I try to do, you know, honestly, but you know, without, you know, which sometimes involves criticism on both sides. But on the other hand, there's a lot of good things about both cultures. So maybe the internet is, is our greater, our king. I, I like your optimism. I, I tell a joke that's a little esoteric, but about a bunch of illuminated manuscriptors that just saw Gutenberg's first Bible. And they're all like, Jesus, did you see that thing? How ugly it is? God, it's, you know, and, and how it's, it's going to ruin us and, and it's going to make churches horrible. I do like that element of the Internet as community. And what I think that writers about food like yourself capture is both the sharing of community, the ability to actually engage beyond our own scope. And there's something that to me is just very um, reverent about sharing meals and the ability to gain insight from others, you know. Well, food is also the story around food, you know. Sometimes I'll veer off on other topics and people are like, stick to food. I'm like, well, everything's about food. I just spoke at a writer's conference and I was the only food writer there. I'm like, everything revolves around food. Absolutely. And I, I have to say, I, uh, being a New Englander, one of my best stories that was called The Last Yankee Judeo Clambake <laughs> in Roxbury, Connecticut, which was my family clambake that ended when the farmer's wife told an anti-Semitic joke to my father, not realizing the Collins family had Jewish relatives. But I love your stories when you were in New England, and I believe that I forget your partner's name. Well, and explaining clams, because I grew up with steamers, <laughs> little necks, ex- triscuits. Yeah, rye triscuits. He's he's addicted to rye triscuits, so, um, which are really good. <laughs> Speaking of reverse food snobbism. I'll have to try them. Um, I, I used to be a big Triscuit fanatic. Leaving the world of the salty goodness of Triscuits, tell us about your new book. Well, my latest book is called La Part or La Pau in French. It's short for the apartment. And a few years ago, I bought my first apartment in Paris. And I started writing about it on my blog, all these stories, and people were so excited. And then it started, the project started going south. Um, and it started going south in, a, in very, very bad ways that weren't things that I don't think people were expecting and people were like, we want to hear, they wanted to hear fun stories about, you know, going to buy like, you know, a beautiful new faucet and doing all these, this stuff and, you know, having wine with the contractors and, you know, the whole project spun out of control and ended up being a disaster. And after it was over, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about France. I learned about, a lot about um, my life. You know, it was a real learning curve. I was sort of in over my head, so it was, it was my fault. 
Um, but it took me a few years, but I was like, you know, these stories were really like, no one's going to believe this is like a nonfiction book because, you know, they're not going to believe what happened. It was so outrageous and crazy. Um, and I finally got it together to write all this stuff down. What happened? It was the hardest book I ever had to write. Um, because you're writing about yourself, writing about difficult things, but making them fun. You know, now I can look back and laugh at it. Um, but it took a few years. Um, but the stuff that happened was just so unbelievable that I had to uh, write it down. So that's my new book and it's coming out in the fall of 2017 in November. So, you know, my last book uh, that I did was called my Paris kitchen which was similar. It was almost a prequel to this book or maybe a sequel. Um, it, it was about how I cook in my kitchen and I had built this whole kitchen specifically for myself in Paris, you know, which is just anybody who's ever remodeled or even bought, had to buy a new sink or just even new cookware. There's all these decisions you have to make. Um, so in that book, I talked about how I cook in my kitchen, what Paris means to me. And in this book, La Part, I talk about, how that kitchen came to be. The book is available to pre-order at your local bookstore, um, or you can go to online, your your favorite online bookseller as well. Um, but it comes out November 7th, and I'll be going on book tour uh, for, I'm not sure where I'm going quite yet, but it's on the schedule page of my blog. I'll put those dates up when I have them. For those that haven't seen David's website, davidlebovitz.com, go to his website if you want to get recipes, if you want to read really lovely stories about what it means to share a meal or travel. If you're going to Paris, if you want to navigate the flea markets, know how better to not embarrass yourself at a restaurant, where to shop. It's just a treasure trove. So... Thank you very much. Uh, I'll, I'll let you kind of close out by telling me what's the favorite food you eat in New York that you don't get when you're uh, abroad in Paris. Well, in the summer, it's blueberries because, you know, I grew up in New England and the East Coast and we always had tons of blueberries. You know, we're just used to this massive amount of blueberries coming forth. Um, and the French don't eat a lot of blueberries. I think they're more of a northern European thing. And like raspberries, when you get them in Paris, they come in these little baskets that have like 12 blueberries in it. So it's great to go to the farmer's market and get these giant baskets of blueberries and eat them with sour cream and a little bit of brown sugar on them. So that's my favorite thing. Nice sour cream with a little brown sugar. I'm going to try that soon on my blueberries. Thanks again, David. You've been listening to Cornucopia, the cult, culture, and business of food. I'm Matt Levine. Find us on Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes. Our website's cornucopia.show. Thanks again. Try a tomato plate too. Here's cacciatore, dore. Taste the bologna, Tony. Everybody eats when they come to my house.